our scripture today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 23. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you fast, do not look somber or as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where both, ver both moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? To finish out this series, we're going to look at embodied Christianity one more time. And today we're going to look at something called the hidden life. Now in this series, we've looked at a lot of Paul's words. We've looked at some of the Old Testament, but we haven't looked at a lot of Jesus's words. And probably Jesus's most famous teaching, I would say by far, is the Sermon on the Mount, which is also called, depending on what book you're reading it from, the Sermon on the Plains. The same teachings were given in two places, one of them on a mountain, the other on the plains. One was set apart and above. The mountain is the place where people go to meet God. The presence, like Mount Sinai with Moses. But the plains, Jesus is at the same level as everybody else. This is God among us. So we have God both above us and among us in the same teachings. And these teachings given both places are super important because they have ideas that we can use. You can read the Sermon on the Mount and you can say, man, this stuff feels totally inaccessible impossible, like the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are, and then Jesus begins to invert all of our aspirations. You go, give me some practical advice that I can work with Jesus, and he goes, okay, great. Blessed, good, are the meek, the simple. Well, Jesus, I'm trying to get complex. I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to grow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but Jesus, I wanna be rich in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus, I don't wanna mourn, I wanna rejoice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for success, not for a partner in life, not for money, not for the trip of a lifetime, but for righteousness. So these things are set apart on a mountain, but they're also, Jesus is coming in among us and he's saying, I'm gonna make these insanely practical. I'm gonna make this a sermon on the plain. I am among you and I am living out the things I'm teaching. You're looking at what it looks like to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be simple, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so Jesus gives us these very practical teachings that, and by practical, I mean we can do them any place, anywhere, 
any time, but they are upside down from the way the world is teaching us to live practically. They're, it's an upside down kingdom, as we've called it. And so in the set-apartness, Jesus is teaching us to be holy because he is holy. We've talked about that word holy and what it means, right? It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean that you're so great and awesome and everything's perfect in your life. It means that you are set apart and you recognize that you're set apart. And at the same time, he is teaching the practicality. We are set apart and yet we are among. So just like Jesus, he is building us to be people that are set apart from society on the Sermon on the Mount, we are on the Mount. When we're here on Sunday, we're gathering in the presence of God, yet we are released in the plains. We go and we are among the world, Monday through Saturday, and even on Sunday, we are among each other in all of our shortcomings. So the practicality of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 6 is he is saying you can make a conscious choice no matter where you are, when you are, what you are doing to live different from the world, spiritually, psychologically. But it, what it will mean is that in a very real way, no matter where you are and no matter in what company you are in, you will be living alone in the world in some way. Anytime you're living set apart, you're living by a different set of rules, a different set of motivations, than the people around you. You cannot just absorb and conform, as we talked about in the last few weeks with Romans 12, but you must live differently. So in our text today, Jesus is taking three very common religious practices for the Jewish people at the time. He's taking charitable giving, giving to the poor, almsgiving. This is a, a typical, known practice, Jewish practice. Any good Jew would know that they set aside money to give to those in need. He's taking prayer, which is going to be a multi-daily ritual. And he's taking fasting, which at least once a year, all Jews are going to be fasting for a period of time. Some of them, probably a lot more. And of course, fasting means to not eat for a period of time. So he's taking these three common religious practices and he's going to do something with them. He's gonna give them a twist. Now, before we even get to that twist, I think for us, these three practices might seem hard to relate to because we are not Jewish people. We don't practice these in the same way. Although we might be generous Christians, Although we have some kind of prayer life, there's not some structure set up that says, oh, for instance, when I was in the Middle East, it was just blatantly obvious that you are in a different culture with a different structure because there is a, I think it's called an imam that is calling out on these speakers all across the city and praying in Arabic multiple times throughout the day. It's just going out and it's honestly, it's kind of amazing. It reminds you of the presence of that culture and the respect that they have to communicate with God. And it's broadcast all over the place. And so you, to actually conform to that culture means to practice it with them, right? So the Jewish people are in some ways conforming to their own culture. They have their own little region and they're practicing all these things. We have different practices as Americans that we conform to, that we consider to be our religious righteous practices, meaning they are the right things to do. For some of us, our holy practices may be going to church every Sunday. That's a holy practice. We measure if we're doing well by the fact that we get to church every Sunday. I'm a good person, I go to church. We might consider that we're a good person. I know some people who don't care really about going to church, but they really care that you give to charity. That's a really important thing to them. So they'll kind of, you'll talk to them and it'll come up in conversation how they give to this local group. Uh, I know people who are, are really, it's important to them that the pictures posted online show them as an upright, moral, united family. So you see these buttoned up pictures, well posed, everybody's smiling, the kid's hair is combed. This is the religious righteous practice that they undergo to be a good person in society. It is most important for them above all that you are put together. 
I know people that it's really important what ingredients you buy for meals when you're hosting people. And so you will see around at the table when you're there to visit different varieties of foods from new seasons and whole foods. And this is their way of being righteous and good in the world. I see people all around on this street and all around town who put signs in their yard that show what they stand for. And this is what it means to be righteous and good. Look, these are my beliefs, the righteous and good ones. I want you to see whether that's a we believe sign or a flag flying in the front porch. There are different ways of saying, here I am. This is what I consider righteous and important. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's taking those common religious practices. And by religious, I do not mean that these have to be Christian practices. Jesus is taking the cultural practices of the time of Jews. And he's saying, I am going to invert these for you to show you what it means to live in the kingdom. It's not about conforming to the culture because sometimes we're in a religious culture and we can get away with conforming. Jesus wants transformation. And so Jesus is, in effect, trolling us. He is fishing. He's searching an area and prodding to see what happens in our heart when he says the thing, and he's waiting for that thing he will say that will upset us. Jesus is a guy who's like poking and trying to see what's going to trigger you and set you off. Because we learn when, we get, when the apple cart gets upset. So Jesus here in these verses that Elijah read is giving us a challenge. Jesus says the habits that look righteous and good, whatever, maybe you identify with some on that list. Don't stop doing them. Do them, but hide them. Do them, but hide them. Remove the worldly reward from these practices and see if you stick with it. See if you still buy the ingredients if nobody knows that you're the righteous, just one who cares about the environment. Hide it. Take them out of the containers and put them in Ziplocs. Like, see what happens. Will you still spend the money? Do you really care about justice or is it about appearing to be righteous? Give to local charities, but never bring it up. Go regularly to church on Sunday, but don't use it as a way to make another person feel guilty or judged. Take pictures of your family and put them in a drawer. Don't even hang them on the wall. Now, he's not saying this as like a permanent, you need to do this with your whole life. He's saying, try it and see what happens in your heart. See what it does to you. See what it makes you feel. So Jesus here, the bottom line of this passage that we need to understand is he is not being critical of those who do these things and certain things happen. He does not critical of people who pray and as a result, they're seen in a good light. He's not, he's not upset at people who fast and as a result, people go, wow, I should try fasting. He's not upset about people who give to the poor and people go, wow, that's really awesome to give to the poor. He is critical of those who give, pray, or fast in, in these illustrations in order to be seen in a good light. That's what Jesus is after here. Not that you, not that he cares about a particular practice and the result, but the motivation in doing that practice is something you do in order to get something from someone other than him. So this is a way of Jesus asking us, would you still want to do this thing if it's just for me? Jesus wants us to be holy and good and he needs us to see where we are fooling even ourselves. So he wants to show us where our holiness isn't for him at all but it's actually for us. And this has felt really potent to me in the last three months or so. I've been sitting down with a friend around a campfire at nights and we've just been talking about things and I go, I think in this life stage, it's really important that I just do certain hidden practices that nobody knows about just for the discipline of doing it. Just to be 
doing those things because Jesus says they're right to do and see what happens with my life, to stick with disciplines. It's so easy to let things go. What if I were to stand alone? Just try it and do these hidden habits. And not, again, not just these three. I'm not talking today just about praying, fasting, and giving. These are illustrations that Jesus is using of the power of the hidden life. So Jesus gives these exercises in building hidden habits so that we can begin to do three things. I'm gonna walk through three things. He wants us to encounter our loneliness. Jesus feels that it's really important for us to actually come in contact and live with and in our loneliness. We can't go around loneliness. We have to live in our loneliness. And then he wants us to give, he gives us these exercises for these hidden habits so that we can begin to journey from something called loneliness into something called solitude. He wants to get us from loneliness to solitude, and we'll talk about that. And out of solitude, he wants us to find great meaning, purpose, and reward. So some of us are terrified of being alone. We're just terrified of it. We want nothing less than to be left at home while everyone else goes and does the thing. And Jesus is saying, it's not the worst thing that can happen. In fact, it's not even bad. In fact, in becoming acquainted with your loneliness, there is, in the words of Jesus three times in this passage, great reward. There is great reward in the hidden life. Okay, so let's walk through encountering our loneliness quickly. Megan and I have taken up watching this show at the recommendation of Noah and Ellen that's called Alone. Has anyone watched this show, Alone? It's a reality show. It's it's actually pretty incredible. We're on season one, so don't spoil it. We're not even through it yet. The premise of Alone is that ten, they, this, the showrunners send 10 people into a remote wilderness location, usually a pretty harsh location. There's rain, there's cold, there's exposure to the elements. They get to take 10 items with them, and the last person standing goes home with $500,000. That's the premise of Alone. They spend the first days with like handling their basic needs, building a shelter with the tarp, getting it so that they just have a place to sleep, getting a fire going, can we get, even get a fire going, gathering and cooking or cleaning water so that they can drink. And then once they've got those three down, that usually takes the first couple days, then they're on to food, to the survival of how do I get something to eat? But in the meantime, what inevitably happens, and this is famous for this show, you hear them say, hey bear, because there's a bear or a cougar or something that comes at night after their stuff, after them that sees them as prey. So they are dealing with all of their basic needs, plus they're terrified, some of them, of dying from a cougar attacking them. This is, this is what happens in the show. So out of like the first 10 days of season one, five people drop because of these issues. Either they're just freezing cold, they can't get food to eat, they, can't, they drink bad water and they get sick, or honestly, a bunch of them are just like, evacuate, I am terrified, there's a cougar literally three feet from me at night, and I, don't, I would rather not die. $500,000 is not worth dying. But it's wild what happens to the next five over the next, so far, 25 days. They go a lot longer. Because they get all these things figured out. They have the courage to face the cougar or the stupidity, whatever you want to call it. And they keep going and going. And then things get really interesting. Because they can conquer a whole bunch of their enemies, right? They can conquer the need for shelter. They can conquer nature. Until they find that there is one enemy that never goes away. And that enemy is themselves. So after about 10 or 12 days, you hear all of them, they're documenting themselves, by the way, they're not camera crews. So they're setting up the camera and they're going, I hate being alone. I can't stand it. All of these things are coming up in my head. All of these inadequacies, all of these, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and I can't get away from them anymore. 
Being alone means to spend time with yourself. And as these people get acquainted with their environment and get their basic needs set up, they have all the time in the world to be with themselves. And if we're honest, this is not something that many of us like to do in the year 2022 in the city of Portland. We do not like to be alone with ourselves. We are afraid of spending time with ourselves. And I think it comes down to a really poignant feeling, and that is a deep inner feeling of shame, a deep inner feeling of not liking ourselves. When we sit alone with ourselves, we don't like who we're spending our time with. And so the reason Jesus' instructions are so difficult is not because they are so hard, but because we're so used to running from our loneliness, filling it with people and voices, real or synthesized. We're used to filling it with Netflix, with takeout, with doom scrolling or dopamine hunting on our phones. Even just texting a friend can be something we do in order to get what we need so that we don't feel lonely anymore. We fool ourselves. And Jesus says, we need to get to know our loneliness. He says, I'm going to make it, I'm going to ratchet it up a notch. Not just get comfortable when you are lonely. Choose to be lonely. Choose it. Choose loneliness. Choose to be alone. Elect to be one of the ten that goes out into the remote wilderness and see what happens inside. And so this, he says, is a hidden practice that will have great reward. So the title of Alone is actually very accurate. The core question of that show is not about survival. It's about how devoted you are to living life alone. How capable, how willing, how able are you to do it? And Jesus's question is this, do you believe that by being alone, you can be transformed? See, every element of transformation in our culture teaches us that something needs to transform me. This class, this trip, this partner, I need to get married so that I'll be transformed, right? There's all of these carrots dangled in front of us for transformation. But Jesus says, the transformation can happen anywhere, any place for anybody because it actually requires that you spend some time alone. So I talked about getting acquainted with this, this feeling of loneliness. The word lonely is different than solitude, isn't it? The word lonely implies a feeling of depression, right? A feeling of lack. I am lonely. We don't say I'm lonely when we're alone and we're happy. We say I'm lonely when we're alone and depressed. We say I'm lonely when we're alone and that's not a good thing. We want something. But Jesus says, you don't have to be lonely when you're alone. It does not require you to be lonely. In fact, it is in being alone that there's great reward, as I mentioned. He says this three places, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. There's a lot of repetition in here because Jesus is saying it's not about the things. You need to see the pattern. A lot of the Bible is about pattern recognition. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give, so that your giving may be in secret. It may be hidden. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Okay, what's that reward going to be? We'll talk about that. But when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into the room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then fasting, when you fast, don't disfigure your face to show other people that you're fasting. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Well, that's wild. Even complaining is a way to get what we want. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. This is something people in that time would do when they expected to do something joyful. They would get ready. This is getting ready for going out on the town. When you fast, put your makeup on, put your nice clothes on and head out on the town. Hide it so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret 
will reward you. So being alone does not require us to be lonely. And this, if we read this closely, what do we find? It's because we're never alone. We're never actually alone in this world. When you are alone and when you are tempted to say, I am lonely, Jesus wants you to face the loneliness and realize that he will never leave you, no matter how alone you feel. So Jesus is giving us these hidden habits to encounter our loneliness so we can journey from loneliness to solitude. That's what we're going to talk about next. So we can journey from loneliness to solitude. Our fear of alone, being alone, what is that? What is, what is our loneliness? There is a human desire to be seen. And to be alone is the lack of being seen. I had a, a friend who told me today, I have realized my whole life that I have not had intimacy. 60 some years old. Confess to me, I have not had intimacy. And then he says, into me, see. Into me, see. I have not had into me, see. I thought about it for a second. I thought, that's profound. I have not had somebody in my life with regularity who has seen into me. And what does he mean by that? Not that nobody has ever known his deepest parts, but that in knowing they have rejected they have left. He has not had anyone in his life, a through line in his life of somebody who sees who he is and affirms who he is. But Jesus tells us that when you do these things and you're in secret, your father who sees, who into you sees what is done, will reward you. He will affirm you. The father is our greatest source of intimacy. So right there, we see how there's a transformation that Jesus is giving to us from loneliness and being alone to what we call solitude. Now, solitude has a very different meaning to it, implication. If I go, I'm going to hike out on this trip alone, I'm going to spend some time in solitude. That is a very different statement than if I say, I, my family's left, I guess I'm going to go out in the woods, I am so lonely. <laughs> That's like night and day different attitude, isn't it? It's an attitude. And the attitude for the Christian, Jesus is saying, is to realize in one, you are abandoning the person who will never leave you, which is God himself, the Father. But in the other, you are embracing that no matter what, you have the Father with you. And the reason this loneliness is so hard for us is because we have these core fears and we're afraid that God the Father will not reward, will not satisfy the core fears that we have. I heard a few core fears these week. This is just a few. There's, you guys all can identify with what is your core fear. It's actually a helpful exercise to ask yourself, what is my deepest core fear? What is the thing that would make me the most afraid? What's something if I lost it, I would be the most destitute? That's your core fear. That motivates a lot of what you do. A friend said, one of my core fears is that my boss won't be happy with my work. And that he will say, and that I will feel, that he believes I don't know what I'm doing. That is a core fear. Another friend said, my core fear is of being lonely, of being alone. And so I'm tempted to go to measures to manipulate so that I can have friends or to allow myself to be manipulated by friends just so I can keep them. I have a core fear of being hurt or losing loved ones, and I will go to extreme measures to control others in the interest of safety, but actually perhaps it's not their safety. It's my fear of losing them. And so I become controlling as a core fear. These are all things that come out of loneliness when we have not seen with eyes that have light, as the end of this is showing, rightly. And instead, we see when we are alone that it is loneliness, which, if you think about Genesis 3, is the exact lie that the devil uses. And it is the lie that Adam and Eve believe. 
that they, when they are seen, will not be affirmed by God, so they cover themselves up. We've talked about this with fig leaves. So we want deeply intimacy, but we're actually deeply afraid of intimacy. That's the, that's the deep irony at the core of all of it. A good example would be a typical trope for online workout classes. This is a secret sauce that online workout classes can use that is really effective to help people lose weight. It's accountability. They want you to be seen. So there's somebody that will check in and have you send a photo that you've done the workout, that will show a piece of paper that says, I have done the workout today, right? Accountability can be really good, in part because we want to be seen. But also it can be because we're afraid of not measuring up. So we do the thing even if we resent it all day long because we're so ashamed that if we're the kind of person that doesn't do it, that we will not just disappoint them, but worse, we will disappoint ourselves, that we will feel this deep shame because we're social creatures. So both things can happen in tandem. These can be really effective. They definitely help people lose weight, to have that accountability, to know that I have to check in. Somebody is gonna check in on me. And either I'm excited because I have somebody who's rooting for me, or I'm so terrified that I'm gonna fail that I just need to do it, and this is the thing that's gonna get me to do it. And both of those can operate out of our core fears. Because of our core fears, we are controlling what is seen. And so in some ways, we become our worst enemy in this process. We act in ways we want to be but are not in hopes of approval and affirmation. Because that is what we see as intimacy. So... In this story that Jesus is giving these three illustrations, we have three different just uh, illustrations that he's giving of Jewish people who he calls the hypocrites, which are people who are acting. Hypocrite is a Greek word that means an actor on a stage. He says, don't be a stage actor who is doing the thing that is expected so that you can get affirmation because it's a lie and it actually doesn't work and you know it. When you get affirmation for a thing that isn't truly something you would do in private, it doesn't really help because they're liking a you that you aren't. Even if people like what they see when we project a certain image, we know it isn't real and the emptiness stays, the loneliness stays. So no matter how many great pictures we get taken of our family and put up online, no matter how much we spend on those ingredients to be righteous and good, if we're doing it so that we can be loved, we will never feel the love. Not because everybody's rejecting us, but because even in the acceptance of us, we will realize that we are just putting up a front. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that lack of intimacy? That lack of either being given intimacy by somebody or, and this is I think the big one, many of us have, some of us have just never had fathers, mothers, siblings who loved us and, and into me saw, right? They didn't see into me. But many of us have had them, but because of people that haven't, we don't have the ability to accept being seen. And so there's a kind of loneliness that never goes away. Even when our spouse sees us in all of us, whether that's naked or crying or whatever it is that makes us feel the most vulnerable. And even though they say, I love you, we say, no, you don't because we are unable to accept you don't really know me. And we actually withhold the intimacy and hang on to the loneliness. But when Jesus gets us truly alone with him and speaks to us, he can transform our loneliness to solitude so that he can slowly chip away at our desire to be something in order to be accepted and instead to be comfortable with ourselves alone with him. 
Now, this does not mean he wants us to just love ourselves and never change. I've also met people that are so happy to be themselves that I'm like, you are so frustrating. Your life could be so much better. You are so off track and you're just fine with it. God, love yourself, man. I feel great. Nobody can judge me. And he says, no, become comfortable with being alone with me. Knowing that I am always there, always encouraging, always leading. See, God is a God of transformation. He never leaves you where you are. But it doesn't make it so that we're not okay when we're fully seen because when we're fully seen in all of our warts and all of our imperfections, he says, I love you. Great is your reward for being seen. Now let's get to work. You've got it in you. He is the perfect coach. And he takes us on this road from loneliness to solitude. And this begins primarily in what Osganus um, took from the Puritans who said that they perform for an audience of one. They perform in their life for an audience of one. So if you like performance, if you like this thing of doing, do it for one person and one person alone, Jesus. Our whole life at the end, who do we stand before at the very end? We know this. You stand before an audience of one. There's no one else. You're not, at that point, you're not thinking about anybody else. It is you and the Father, and he looks at you, and he looks right into you, all of you. And you ask yourself at that point, what on earth was I doing being so concerned about everything else? The whole time, this was only an audience of one. And in, in the show alone, they actually bring this up. They say, at, at this point, there's four guys left. We're on day 21. They go, I'm not even competing against the other guys. None of them know who's left. They're all on their own. Nobody's being updated. They don't, they don't get a Hunger Games thing in the sky that says, now there's just two of you left, right? They just, it's just them. And they go, I'm only competing against myself. Now, I'm drawing these connections to show you that the gospel can be found in these places because they don't have it all. Some of them are Christian, but they don't have, they're not all spelling it out in the way that Jesus is, but they're so close because it doesn't take much to say, I'm only competing with myself, to say, the world can fall away. I only am standing before the Father in everything. We talked last week about the drumming, uh, going to a beat of a different drummer in life. This is a way that we are alone and yet with somebody, always. In Romans 1 through 12, it said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice set apart, holy and pleasing. That pleasing means you have one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to be not seen by others, but to please God in how you live think and act that in some ways the older we get the more we realize i'm only with me in this life and that isn't that isn't like a cynical thing both megan and i have expressed to each other in the last year i'm starting to realize more and more that i'm like an independent soul in the universe that it's at the end of the day i'm with me and this life is a journey i'm going to take with myself and so I have to decide how I want to do that. I can't decide for Megan how she should live that life. She can't decide for me. And yet we are married to each other. We get to journey together, but we both journey together before an audience of one. That's wild because when you team up with somebody to cure your loneliness, which is what marriage can so often be, you then become codependent and you actually start to become resentful, bitter, all these other things, because you're no longer performing for the audience of one, you're performing for the audience of one. And you start to realize I'm losing myself. I don't know who I am anymore because I live to make you happy. But then when you're not happy, I'm crushed. I'm just crushed. And God can see through all of that. And he says, live a hidden life. 
and he will show up for you. This is the wild part. This is just wild. In the Bible, I, I thought of four stories. There's probably more, but I thought of four really pivotal stories of the patriarchs or prophets where God takes them through this journey. Jacob, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, after he goes through that whole thing with Rachel and Leah, he finds himself alone, facing, in his loneliness, God will bring you to your core fear. He will. Many of you are there. I've talked to you and I know what your core fear is and you're facing it anytime you're alone. He brings him to his core fear of not defeating his older brother and obtaining God's promised inheritance and blessing. That was Jacob's core fear, that I'm the younger, yet I'm the blessed, but I will not get it because of Esau. So he tries to maneuver his whole life to keep the blessing that God has promised him. Until at one point in his loneliness at night, facing his brother on the horizon, knowing that he's more powerful, more capable, that he could obliterate him in a moment, he wrestles with an angel, with the angel of the Lord. Moses, 40 years in the desert after he kills a man in Egypt to defend his people, misunderstood. They go, you're just a killer. We don't want you to lead us. You can't even control your impulses. You're criminal flees, not loved by either his people or the Egyptians anymore. And his deep core fear, deep in his entire identity is not being accepted by the Israelites as true people and not being able to rule. So God comes to him in the burning bush in his loneliness after 40 years of loneliness that God is trying to shape into solitude. And the solitude only begins when Moses turns away from his loneliness and listens to God speak out of the bush. And what does God do? He says, don't believe all of those lies. Moses says, I can't speak, right? I can't lead. He's trying to get out of it because he would rather have his loneliness than the lonely solitude he feels of leadership. So he wants people around him. And I can testify to this. It's hard to do it when you're alone. So God, God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron, your brother. But I think what God's really saying is you don't need him. And it becomes very true that Moses doesn't need him. Aaron just makes things a lot worse for Moses most of the time. Golden calf incident. There's lots of times where you're like, why is Aaron in the picture? But Moses said, I'm lonely. I need somebody. And God says, okay, in your journey to bring you to solitude and comfortableness that you are enough to lead Israel with me, as long as you're with me, I'm going to show you by giving you Aaron and then showing you how much it mucks things up until you get to a place where you trust just me and me alone. Not that you shouldn't have other people around you but that you first and foremost must arrive at solitude where you trust me. One more with another 40. Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights, journeys to Horeb, which is Mount, another name for Mount Sinai, the same mountain that Moses finds God on. He is fed by God for 40 days and 40 nights in his loneliness, in his aloneness, till he's here on the mountain God in what? The still, small voice. And Elijah is in his weakest and most fearful moments. He is on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. He thinks he's the last prophet alive. Then Jesus imitates, but he doesn't imitate it out of accident. He doesn't go, oh, I'm so lonely, and God sends him out into the desert to, to, to shape him up. Jesus chooses his 40. He chooses 40 days of exile in the wilderness. In Mark 1, it says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And there he was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. Jesus says, I'm going to go on the alone show. Wild animals, sign me up 40 days. I can do it. I choose to be alone. And I think that gets to the bottom of it, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, choose. Choose your aloneness. Aloneness doesn't happen to you. Choose, not loneliness, but choose solitude. And in the solitude, I will meet you as I met Jacob, as I met Moses, as I met Elijah. But do it like Christ. 
choose it. And then you would develop what I call a knowing with God. There are certain friends in life I've identified that I have a knowing with. They get me. I get them. When I leave a time hanging out with them, I don't feel exhausted. I feel filled up. I have a knowing with them. They have a knowing with me. God wants us to have a knowing with him. And that knowing isn't something anyone else can do for us. So you can come to Citizens for seven years every Sunday. And as soon as we close in four weeks, you will find that you don't know God and he doesn't know you. You don't have a knowing if you don't spend the time with him alone. Oswald Chambers talks about this verse that we read for our call to worship, Colossians 3. 3. I'll read it again because I know if you're anything like me, my brain's all over the place when the call to worship's going on. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's it. That's it. That's what Jesus is after in Matthew 6. Oswald Chambers writes this. He says, when you find your hidden life with Christ, you will find that it is not the mountain peak that you thought it was, that that you could never get to, the place, the high up place. It's like nobody can get, I'm not a mountain peak person. You will find that it's a high plateau with room to roam, that it is the most secure place in the world and there nothing can harm you. If you can be alone, as that show testifies, you can do it. So Jesus says, I'm going to lead you into loneliness. I'm going to ask you to choose it, to transform your loneliness as a victimhood to a choice of solitude. Practice the hidden habits, and in them you will find great reward, which I call great meaning and purpose, because we're looking for different rewards. And if we have meaning and purpose, we can do lots of things. You can do all the chores in the world if it means you're going to get that thing you want. And you know your kids are like that too. It's about motivation. God, I need motivation. As Christians, we think we're supposed to not care about rewards. I don't need rewards. The Christian life isn't about getting rewards. Isn't it about downward mobility? Isn't it about going to the cross? Why does Jesus use reward-based reasoning? Because Jesus embodies, he is a human, and he embraces human psychology. He actually believes in a reward system because he says it all over the place in this text. Three times, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the question is, what is the reward? We have to kind of mine a little bit to find it. In verse two, he says to those who are the hypocrites, who are the stage actors, he says they have received their reward in full when they announce their giving and are honored by others. The reward then must be affirmation. The reward is affirmation. And your father who sees what was done done in secret will reward you. The ESV Bible study notes, it says, the tragic irony of these hypocrites was that they had received their reward of public and professional acclaim, but that was all the reward they would ever receive. And such fleeting human adulation precludes satisfaction of the deep longing of people's hearts to stand approved by their father who sees in secrets. Basically, Jesus knows if you get the social reward, it will be enough for you. It will satisfy that longing for enough that you will not seek the affirmation of the father. We won't have a reward from God, not because God isn't there to give it to us, but because we don't prefer it or we don't want to stick around long enough to find it. And the the Christian church honestly has a bad track record of encouraging aloneness. We see this even from the way we minister to people who are single. It's all about getting married. That's the message of wholeness. What if it was all about living for an audience of one no matter where you are in life? 
Are we conforming to culture or are we being transformed by Christ? So we have to think, even in your own culture, in your own desires and what you communicate to others, you are communicating culture. So you have to think, what is the real root of this? What are we after? How do I encourage those I lead, whether it's parenting or at work or whatever, to live for an audience of one? And that reward that we talked about that you receive from the audience of one is two, at least two things. These are two I'm going to talk about. The reward of freedom from shame. Freedom from shame. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I use that over and over. That has changed the way I think about my faith. I grew up, that text, for whatever reason, did not go in. And it needs to go in. That Jesus is here to free you from shame. Not so that you can just run amok and not feel bad about anything. So that he can adopt you into himself so that you see there is one who will always love me and I can trust that person as the one that I should follow, that I can be a disciple because into me see, because Jesus into me sees and I have that intimacy with Christ and he calls me son and daughter. So there is that accepting your acceptance which helps you be comfortable in your own skin, which makes you more useful. That is a great reward. When I'm in a dangerous situation, I do not want people that are performing for things that, for any odd thing. I want people who are people who are comfortable in their own skin, who are centered, who know what the purpose is, what the meaning is. Those are the people I want to lead me. Everyone else is like chaff in Psalm 1 that blows to and fro, opportunistic. Whatever is going to benefit them, you cannot trust that kind of leader. So Jesus says, I'm shaping you into a disciple who can be a co-regent, a co-ruler with me, as Genesis 1 and 2 say. Because that's what I have as my vision for the kingdom. And it gives us a new way of seeing that's what verse 22 and 23 talk about. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So there's a few concrete starting places. We'll wrap up. A few concrete starting places for you guys. I don't know how everyone in this room is with their alone practices. I don't talk to you all a ton about your alone practices. In your cohorts, you may talk about them a little bit, but only you know what your alone like, your alone life is like with God. This is a thing that only you can do. There's some places that you can start, and three good ones are right here in the text. You can start with praying a hidden life. Not just praying, you know, don't just say, I'll pray for you to sound caring and then not, which I've done. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Totally forget because I don't have a regular prayer practice at that time. I'm not writing it down. I'm not remembering it. So what is that? That is the hypocrite praying in the streets to look good, to be affirmed. I'm the kind of person that prays for people. I'll pray for you. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my, my homeboy. It's great. Like, I've got this. Then I don't. That's hypocrisy. But you know what's even one more than that? Because that's just shame-based logic. Okay, John's shaming me. Now next time, I've got to do it for John. Right? No, G Jesus is saying, go way further. Go to your room. Close the door. And pray to your Father who is unseen. Make it a regular practice to spend time with God praying. And then you will find that you're praying for all kinds of people and you're not even telling them. That's totally different. Now no longer am I failing at the request of somebody to pray. I'm praying for all kinds of people that don't even know that I'm praying for them. So it could be in your prayer life that you need to be thinking about what is my spiritual habit that I want to grow that I'm doing for no one else than the Father himself. No one else knows. Nobody else needs to know. And it will not even change the effectiveness. I've even thought to myself, well, it's only really effective if I pray for people if I let them know what I prayed. 
there's something about like this circuit that needs to be completed. If I let them know the prayer, then that'll like psychologically influence them. It'll make the prayer more likely to become real because they'll know John's praying for them. They'll see that. I'm, but if I just keep it quiet, like basically I'm saying God's impotent. He can't do it without me. No, there's a hidden prayer life or fasting. I mean, fasting. If you fast, you will understand what they mean by the complaining thing. Like you want to complain. You want somebody to know this is hard and I did it. So I'm, I'm awesome. I did it today. If you don't say I'm awesome, I'm going to feel like I need to say it again. Like this sucks. <laughs> okay, I'm awesome. Great. Thank you. I needed that affirmation because I was doing it for you and I didn't even know it. Fasting is a great practice because what it does is it practices the restraint that we're going to use all throughout our life in the Christian walk. Giving sacrificially, same story. These hidden practices, where are you with them? Are you living an examined life where you ask yourself, what am I really like? And do you believe that you won't just be doing these things to fake it? Like I cannot complain, but I'm never gonna truly be happy. I can fast, but this fasting isn't working. The only thing that makes me feel good, honestly, is when I complain and somebody else says, good job. But I never believe that I'll actually hear from the Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep going, but trust that God is going to bring breakthrough in that for you. That he is going to build a second nature out of you. I was thinking about this phrase, second nature. When we say, oh, I did it as second nature, right? Arthur comes in, he makes coffee. At this point, it's probably second nature. I know I'm arriving at church no longer at 10. I arrive now at 9.30. Second nature, I make the coffee because I've done it over and over and over again. It is now second nature for me. Well, we have a second nature if our life is hidden in Christ. Our second nature is Christ. We've practiced it and practiced and practiced the hidden life until it has become second nature because we are now in Christ. That is saying we, it is our second nature to be Christ. And then real magical things can start happening. This is where I'm going to close. Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's like just imagine how he got there. Try to imagine what he felt. Jesus has chosen the hidden life, his whole ministry from the temptation forward. He is living this hidden life. He's going out and retreating for prayer. He tells the disciples, this kind of demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. The guy fasts. He's giving of his whole life to serve other people. And he had three temptations that were given to him by the devil that he did not cave to at that moment. One was bodily provision. That if you, if you can, turn these stones into bread. The other was personal protection. Jump off this thing and angels can catch you if you jump off the top of this building. Use your own power for personal protection. Use your own power for ministry success. The third temptation is that I will give all of this to you. Use your power for your dreams to come true. Imagine now Jesus at the cross. God has now the one who will never leave him in his transformation, which Jesus doesn't really go through the same kind of loneliness to solitude transformation, right? Jesus starts and he chooses solitude at his earliest moment of ministry. In his life of solitude, he has always been with God until one moment, God leaves. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate into me see, the ultimate being seen. Jesus, just as Isaac trusted Abraham that God has a plan, but you are the sacrifice had nowhere to go at that point. He had given his whole hidden life, his whole life, his whole second nature was to be with the Father, to be like the Father. And then the Father tells him something that would make all of us cave. He says, you are the sacrifice. And Jesus pulls in Isaac, he gets up on the altar, and he says, 
All right, Dad, I trust you. I trust you. That in this whole thing, the removal of intimacy is necessary for some reason, and I can deal with it because I know that you will never leave me. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he's turning from God, but because just like Isaac, he's probably like, uh, I don't know what to do, but I don't know where else to go. I am going to trust that even when my solitude may turn to all of the feelings that would create loneliness because of the hidden life I've practiced, I have faith that God will come through with it. As he did for Moses when God showed up and said, I am the God of your ancestors and I will free your people. As he did with Elijah when Elijah at that moment with the still small voice, God shows up and says, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 that are out there. Jesus, in the moment of deepest closeness to that feeling of loneliness, trusts that God will come through again. And if he did it for them, as he did it for Christ, won't he do this for you and for I in our solitude with him?